I only hope that we never lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a mouse. Hello, everyone out there in podcast land. This is the Beyond the Mouse podcast, the Disney theme podcast for NPR Illinois and also for the Front Row Network. We are so excited to bring you another wonderful guest today. But before we do, let's introduce ourselves. My name is Craig, and I'm here with my co-host, Brett Rutherford. Hello. And also Vanessa Ferguson. How are you guys doing today? Doing great. Yeah, and we are so excited to bring you a really fun uh interview with someone that has been deeply involved with the Disney company and particularly the Disney parks, which we are all big fans of for a long time. We just had a chance to interview Dan Cockrell and we can't wait to uh, have you hear that. But uh, how how are you feeling about the interview, Vanessa? How'd it go? Uh, I thought it went really well. I was I was very excited by it. He's such a wealth of knowledge. So I, I felt like a sponge. Like I just wanted to keep him talking for as long as possible so I could take in all the information uh, that he has gathered in his lengthy career. But obviously that's not possible, but I certainly tried. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So before we get into it, let me read a quick bio for Dan. Dan first joined Disney in 1989 as a participant of the Walt Disney World College Program, where he worked in the resort parking and front and desk guest services at hotels. Upon graduation from Boston University, he was selected into the Disney Management Trainee Program and joined a task force to open Disneyland Paris. He transferred to France and worked in various management positions in guest relations, main entrance operations, food and beverage, and attractions. After five years in France, Dan returned to Walt Disney World, where he held successive executive positions in both resort hotels and theme parks. These roles grew from general manager of the All-Star Resort to later becoming vice president of Disney's Epcot Center theme park, followed by serving as vice president of Disney's Hollywood Studios theme park, and culminating in becoming vice president of Magic Kingdom theme park. Dan started his own company in May 2018 and currently travels the world for consulting and speaking engagements where he advocates his people-first leadership philosophy. Dan draws upon his extensive Disney career to provide relevant, engaging examples and inspiring storytelling. And it is just such a really cool conversation. We can't wait to get into it. So here it is. Well, we welcome to the show, Dan Cockrell. We are so excited to have you on Beyond the Mouse, a Community Voices partner of NPR Illinois. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I always like getting a call from somebody, so I appreciate it. Absolutely. We have a lot to discuss today about your career with the Walt Disney Company, but then also your new book that'll be coming out. And I even have a question about your podcast coming at you here in a little bit. So right. uh, we'll try to try to get you a variety of different questions here. And actually, Brett is going to start us off. Okay. Well, when you become a Walt Disney World cast member, your Disney orientation begins with Traditions 1. And I found it, well, okay, I'm a former cast member, uh, I found it very interesting that the first item that you learn about uh, wasn't Disney magic or guest fun, but the number one goal at Walt Disney World is safety. Can you speak about the current pandemic and how Disney needed to get it right when the parks first reopened? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, at, at Disney, we have the, the four keys, which you know very well, and everyone who's worked there knows them by heart. Safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency and uh, safety is the number one key. And we, um, it's funny, when we talk to our guests and we ask them what they like about Walt Disney World and what's mo most important to them, 
very few of them say safety because they just assume it's just understood. If you're going to come to Disney, safety is taken care of. And they don't even think about that kind of thing. And luckily that's good, but there's a lot of work behind the scenes that goes in to make sure they don't think about that. And so over time uh, with the, the, the pandemic happening, you know, that was, um, those are some tough decisions. I know that you're trying to, usually what you find is in those situations, you have about 40% of the information you need. And when you start making a decision like that, it's like bringing a whole city online and uh, trying to get ahead of that. So um, I think what, what I've been talking to people about is when you make a decision like that, you are, you're looking at, um, you know, obviously local uh, state laws and regulations, you're looking at federal laws and regulations. And then most importantly, you're finding out and you're pulsing your guests and you're pulsing your employees to find out what their thoughts on this are and how, you know, how much risk do they feel and can we execute this without putting people in danger um, and I think I've, someone told me if you buy a ticket at, at Magic Kingdom or Disney now, you have to sign off on something like a disclaimer or a waiver. But at the end of the day, Disney's not going to – doesn't want you to get sick. And they don't want you to get hurt. They want to keep you safe. And uh, my wife and I were actually there a couple weeks ago and spent some time over there. And they um, – you know, I, there was no surprise to me that they were able to the, – all the infrastructure, all the barriers to put in place, the training – uh, the temperature checks. I mean, you'd think that this, they've been doing this for years and cause that's what Disney does. They execute really well. And uh, they even had to change the policy. I think last week, cause people always find a loophole and they were walking around with their food. And when people said, you have to have your mask on this. So I'm eating and you're, you're allowed to. So they said, okay, well now the new rule is you have to be sitting down while you're eating. You can't walk around with your, your drink or your food in your hand. But um, it's uh it's tough. Cause it's really, you know, Florida is a hotspot right now. Disneyland's not even reopened yet. Um, but I think, um, you know, if anyone's going to figure out all the detail and all the rigor that has to go into it, it's going to be Walt Disney World because that's what they do. They're into the details and every experience is architected there. So it's uh, there's been a, it's been very thoughtful. Absolutely. And, you know, we don't want to dwell on the pandemic. We're all living through it. Um, but you have had some really unique uh, experiences, both as a general manager in the resorts, but of course also the VP kind of in charge of three of the four parks and uh, at any given time. Can you speak to, uh, you mentioned some of the systems for efficiency, but can you speak to any uh, crisis or event that uh, happened when you were in that position that uh, might relate to where they're at either today or just something that you'd like to speak to from experience? Well, you know, the I was there during, you know, it's kind of like, what my my parents remember where were you when you found out John Kennedy had been assassinated or shot and it's the same thing I think for a lot of younger people is where were you when you found out about 9-11 and that was just an incredible day uh, at Disney when it was um, no one knew what was going on and you know they it was the first time we had closed the park in the middle of the day like that and within just a couple hours the parks were closed evacuated people were back in the hotels at the time cell phones weren't as uh, connected as they are today back in 01. We opened up all the long distance lines. Anyone could call anywhere in the world for free. Uh, if you couldn't get flights out, which you couldn't, people were, we put up for people for free. Um, and I think during these emergency times, it's really, um, you find out, okay, did we prepare the right way? And, you know, a lot of training goes into this. And we train for hurricanes every single year. And many years, we never got a hurricane, but we kept training for it, knowing, and after, you know, there was a big, gap in between. And then that year back in the, the early 2000s, we got like in two, 06, I think we got like three in a row. 
and um, we were ready. And people expect to be safe. And um, what I found is people at Disney under crisis, it seems like everyone just gets better. People perform at a much higher level and they're, they're a lot sharper. They make decisions. They're thinking about the guests and, uh, it's kind of ironic that under more pressure, people get better. And you can't sustain that for a long period of time. But during this crisis, people are ready to roll. And I think one of the successes is, once again, it's it's preparation. We're not looking for heroes the day uh, an, uh, an incident happens. We want everyone to know what the plan is, stay calm, and follow the plan. Because when you're dealing with that many people, you can't have people making up a new plan. And uh, that, that works out pretty well, whether it's hurricanes, whether it's 9-11. Um, um, and, you know, we've had success with that. Yeah, that Actually, speaks to I, that culture and planning, right? Uh, but Brett, I was at Disney World as a guest uh, a couple of years ago during Hurricane Matthew, and I felt very safe, you know, and because I, I, being a former cast member, I knew that uh, that safety was number one, and so I felt that I was in a very good place. So I was yeah. very happy for uh, the planning and the Hurricane Ride Out crew and all of that. So I had a friend who was on Hurricane Ride Out crew that time around and she kept me a little informed on a few things. So that was a good thing. So, and ironically the hotels fill up when hurricanes come because all the locals come out. So like, I know we're, we're likely to have power. We're going to get fed. We're going to be safe and it's no safer place to be than there. So it's uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of people put a lot of credence into that. Oh, you had a question about Epcot. Yeah, I did. Okay. Yeah. So, well, the guest experience has changed at Epcot since it opened in 1982. I was a guest on opening day. I was very excited about Epcot. And Epcot holds a very special place in your heart, I understand. But um, Epcot started out with more of an educational or um, edutainment model. And it moved to an almost completely entertainment mode. Did the Epcot audience experience a dramatic change or they wanted more excitement and less learning experiences? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. I think one of the, uh, I've, I've told audiences this often, you know, Walt Disney always um, said we have to keep evolving. And when you look back at Disneyland and you look back at, he kept, he constantly was changing things. And after he died, I think people started saying, well, would Walt approve of that or not? And the reality was he had said it himself, you know, these parks are not museums. They're living organic places that are going to continue to change. And we have to reflect what the guests want and what they need. And so, um, you you know, it's uh, I think the reason we talk about that is guests don't always know what they want. Um, You know, before 07, I didn't think I wanted or needed an iPhone. But once I saw it, I'm like, wow, I need this. And uh, so a lot of times we're trying to figure out, what is the, what are the best experiences for our guests? What do they want, want to get out of this? What emotional connections do we want to give them? But we also have to use practical data to say, did you enjoy your visit? Was it excellent? Was it what you expected? Did we exceed your expectations? Cause we need people to come back again. And um, I think over time we kept talking to our guests, we kept shifting um, about what, what they wanted along the way. And as we've, I would say, as the company has gotten more and created more and more intellectual property people want more of those stories. They want to, you know, they get, they get really connected to the movies and that's what Disney's great at is just synergizing, create a movie, then create products and create experiences around it. And uh, I think that's where they've gone. Now you couldn't get, you can't get the purists who say, you know, originally Epcot was supposed to be a place where people are going to work and live. And that was the original concept and it didn't come together that way. Um, But I would argue that I think world showcase has done a pretty good job just by the nature of how it's set up 
um, you know, you bring in people from all over the world to work there and it's a pretty authentic experience. And um, as you all probably have seen, we, like I said, we do have a lot of experience at Epcot, our whole family. And actually our son is working there right now in the bakery in France. Uh, that's an advantage of our kids having dual nationalities. They can go work at the French pavilion. Um, oh, wow. But it's, um, I think it's, uh, it's a really, as my wife had worked there, you know, 30 years ago, um, most Americans, uh, many Americans are never going to get the opportunity to go to those countries. And the fact they're going to get to meet someone from those countries, ask questions, learn about that is a big deal. And um, I remember hearing a story once that um, i trying to remember who came up with this, but they said uh, one day they said they would like to think that there's two world leaders who are having some sort of entanglement. And the irony would have been that they were roommates while they were working at the world showcase at Walt Disney <laughs> world. And they're able to work through an international incident because they know each other. And uh, that's, that's been a huge thing. And, and it's funny, my wife has reunions with the people she met uh, in the World Showcase from Mexico and China and Japan and Morocco, and she still talks to them regularly. Um, so it really does, uh, has formed a community over time. But yeah, it's definitely gotten more, I, I guess, to your point, maybe more commercialized in nature versus what it was originally um, supposed to be. And I will guarantee you that it's going to look different in 20 years from now because these places evolve, people evolve. Well, speaking of it looking different, I guess that's one thing we were wondering because Epcot was probably next was was next in line and, and probably needed to be next in line for a refurbishment. Now with um, those plans kind of halting um, with this with the construction, we're seeing a lot of that getting canceled. Um, what are your thoughts on the status of Epcot and and what what that future will look like? Yeah. Well, for me, um, the uh, World Showcase is the heart and soul of that park. Future World is a pretty cool place. And, you know, you have a, a great coaster going in there and there's, you know, there's things being done. Um, I think there's a lot of stuff that's, you know, they're too far down the path on construction to not finish it up. Um, I'm following it from afar, but um, the, um, uh, what am I thinking of? And, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, right? Or Ratatouille. Ratatouille. And in Ratatouille, I Ratatouille. think that building is in and it's enclosed and working on it. So I would assume, you know, after 9-11, after the recession of 08, I think Disney has always been counterintuitive saying, you know what, when things, when, during times of crisis, let's really double down and prepare, make the investments because, you know, um, the economy is secular. And um, the, the economy will get better. It's going to get worse and it's going to get better. This pandemic will go away and we're going to have another crisis in the future. I mean, this is just the way the, way the world is. And uh, I think what I've seen a lot of times is Disney recognizes those cycles and realizes during these downtimes, this is a great time to be investing because, um, you know, there's not as much construction happening. There's not as much labor and it, you can get it at a much better rate. So when you come out of this, people are ready to roll and you're on the front edge of that growth again. Um, that would be my guess. Uh, obviously, they have to run the company. They're held to quarterly earnings. There's a lot of things they have to juggle, but uh, there's no there's no doubt that Disney's in it for the long haul, and these are blips along the way. They, like I said, I, I tell my kids and I told a lot of young people, this will not be the only or probably the worst crisis you're ever going to be in in your life, and you're getting some good experience early because uh, you know, I've been through 9-11 back in 87, uh, Black Monday when the, the, the uh, whole stock market crashed. I mean, I've seen a lot of these things. I've seen layoffs. And uh, this is part of life as you roll along. It's hard when you're in the middle of it, but as you get older, you get a little more context around it. 
Well, okay, so it's a burning question and a constant eye roll for me when I see that there's no line for an attraction that was once gorgeous and amazing and a guest favorite and now isn't. (laughs) When I was at D23 Expo last year and they were announcing so many updates to Epcot and then nothing about imagination. Oh, okay. (laughs) So I'm going to be blunt. What's the deal with imagination? (laughs) You know what? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Next question. I don't know. I'm like going, oh, because it was glorious when, when it first was available glorious and you know and yeah that's kind of a you know old school thing oh i remember it was so good and all that you know and then you know in the various incarnations including honey i shrunk the audience was uh kind of prophetic (laughs) i don't you know honey i kind of shrunk the audience they're not returning so (laughs) i loved that that was my childhood stop it yeah I always say that Brett looks a little bit like the dream finder. So that's probably why. I was just about to say that. I'll get a job. Yay. (laughs) My childhood was Captain Eel, which made a return. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was was great. Yeah. You know, it is a challenge. I'll tell you, Um, whenever you're messing with anything at Disney, um, it's got some emotional attachment for a lot of people. And, you know, what I've heard over the years is guests will tell us, Look, I want new and exciting things when I come every time, but don't change anything because I have these memories. Like when you grow up, you have that you want to go home again. And that's always what we that's the that's the the tug of war we play with of what do you want to change and what do you want to update? And if you can find the happy medium and what we found over time is and we're lucky to work in a company or I used to work in a company that people cared so much about what you're doing and you had so much of that uh that tradition and heritage that people cared a lot. And uh, it's, it was kind of a, we kind of saw as a no win situation. And I'd say that a lot of rehabs went really well. And once in a while you'd hit something and no one's figured that out, but it'll an Imagineer. There's someone right now in maybe elementary school, who's the next Imagineer, who's going to go in and make that thing uh, fantastic and, and bring the whole theme of imagination. It wasn't for me, I don't know about you. It wasn't so much the actual attraction. It was the, uh, emotional, the, the motivation and the passion for being creative. They talked about, you know, every idea can become mm-hmm. something incredible. And I think that um, that's probably, the message was probably more, much better than the attraction was. But um, it's... Uh, it was an intangible, you know, right. and they kind right. of, and they talked about, you know, imagination and creativity are all these things. It's math and science and arts and literature. And it so just takes it was... Yeah, just one little spark. So. One little spark. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, speaking of things that um, have done really well, uh, at least from our point of view, we're excited about it, is Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. And um, we just wanted to ask, what was some of your experiences or stories from um, the planning stages of that section of the park? Boy, last time I told the story, there was stuff. I mean, it's like you'd think I had breaking news over all the Internet. Anyway. <laughs> It was it, that was a that was a really exciting project. It was it was big and uh, the the what the expectations were going to be, but um, I got to work on it way way early, a uh, few years on the master planning before we even got to a place where we were going to build it. And uh, this this comes a little bit back to what's relevant for people. So you know the story I told people is we um, we worked for two, almost two years on a concept of basically you were going to go to Tatooine and you were going to go to the planet Tatooine. You're going to be able to go to 
um, the uh, the bar on Tatooine, and you were able going to be able to see the band, and you're going to get these, you know, what we say are the like 1976 and 1980s Star Wars experience. And then one day, uh, Kathleen Kennedy, uh, who met with Bob Iger, said, "You know what? I want to share some thoughts with you. There are more Star Wars stories ahead of us than behind us, and we really should think about how to make this thing timeless." Um, and of course, us 40 and 50 somethings were like, "Well, forget timeless." We want Tatooine. And I think they recognize there's a bunch of kids out there who are coming to Disney who they're going to see a bunch. You know, Star Wars for them is not just the old movies. It's a lot more than that. And so they went ahead and built it to be a timeless place. And so interestingly, it's a place that isn't necessarily so far doesn't have a place in any of the movies, but it's recognizable by its architecture. It's recognizable by um, it's the, the way it's designed, but it is timeless. Uh, it's the same way they they um, built Pandora in uh, Animal Kingdom. It's you know the whole storyline is 50 years after the last movie, and I guess there's like four more Avatar movies coming out. So they had to build. They didn't want to have a movie come out and people show up and they're like, "Where's so and so?" And they're like, "Well, we don't have that because we built this land before the movie." So they, you know, so a lot of this is about planning and thinking ahead. But um, I got to see a lot of that, and these Imagineers are incredibly talented and creative and. Um, I've, I've got to visit once to go to, uh, uh galaxy's edge and, uh, it's, it's, it's very well done. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing. It's pretty, you, you get transported into another world for sure. And they, I think they delivered on all the design criteria that they they hold themselves accountable to. Well, that's, I mean, that's so nice to hear from you since you were there kind of at the, at another point in time in the story. And, uh, and if you're happy with it and the guests are thrilled with it, so it's a good thing. Yeah. Well, at the end of the day, having worked for Disney for so long, you got to, you got to start, you just always have to remind yourself if the guests are happy, we're doing a great job. Um, Cause a lot of times we like to put our own opinion into it, which often is helpful, but sometimes it's like, well, we say we're not building this for us. We're building it for the guests. They're the ones who are paying. They're the ones who are going to vote with their dollars and we have to deliver them the experience. And so uh, I, you know, I've been to meetings where we'd say, look, we built this new queue line. The guests won't follow it. You know, if we didn't have all these guests, we wouldn't have all these problems <laughs> in the finance. Rats. Like, well, we these guests wouldn't have any money either. So <laughs> figure out what they want. Yeah. You know, we've, we've asked so many different park questions of you and we're definitely going to get into the leadership side because you've done so much on leadership and culture and uh, whether that's at the Disney Institute or your years as a consultant now and the last couple of years since you've left the the company, but uh, it, it's just so incredible to get to talk to someone that has had the experiences of uh, managing Epcot and managing Hollywood Studios, managing the Magic Kingdom, and, and what that means to people. And uh, so, thanks for answering all these questions about parks. And we only have, I think, just one more, uh, and that's <laughs> that. You know that we we've heard of a, a recent retheme coming up to Splash Mountain, and I, I know you probably have some comments on that, but also. Um, more so, just if you could walk us through the process of how uh, an attraction comes to be or a retheming comes to be, just from your perspective, from the executive side, how uh, all of that is is done and, and what that process might look like for us outsiders that don't get to see inside the process. Yeah, it's um, I think I've I've discovered everything in life can be put on a four quadrant grid, right? So you have four quadrants, and on one axis you put uh, what's the popularity of this offering that can be a restaurant that can be a merchandise location that can be attractions. Um, what's the popularity 
And um, what's the the rating? How do rate people rate those experiences? Are, is it hitting its uh, on all cylinders? And so you get some attractions. They're like really popular and they're highly utilized. And so um, like uh, Soren at Epcot, really popular, really utilized. So what did they do? They built a third theater because we need more Soren. It's popular. We just need more of it. Um, then you have other attractions that are um, uh, maybe not carrying as many people. They're doing okay in popularity, but they could use a, a, a facelift. And so you think about Pirates, for example, and you add a Johnny Depp character, a Jack Sparrow, and that gets that kind of re-energizes the attractions around the movies, and you can give that. And then you have other attractions that just need a wholesale um, overlay, and let's let's retheme the whole thing and bring something more, um, much more uh, relevant in. Um, the one I, I think of is um, actually not at Disney. It's over at Islands of Adventure at Universal, but they ended up taking, you know, the, like the, the Dueling Dragons coaster and did a Harry Potter overlay, which was really smart. You still have the same ride system. You're just telling a different story now that people kind of uh, connect with. Um, so a lot of that goes into this. Uh, you're trying to look at what the, uh, we, we have uh, what, some of our properties, what we call our um, intellectual property. Um, there's evergreen properties. Like uh, if we're going to build something, um, Toy Story, anything you're going to build with Toy Story is evergreen. It's probably never in our lifetimes going to not be popular. But then you have other storylines of is this a one and done? Is this going to be as popular in five years from now as it is today? So you're constantly asking yourself that question, what's the staying power of these things? And then uh, another big piece is what's the um, relevancy to guests? Um, you know, For example, at Hollywood Studios, uh, when I was working there, we really only had two attractions that didn't have height requirements. You had a great movie ride and you had um, Midway Mania, Toy Story Midway Mania. And those were the two. The rest were shows or uh, simulators or coasters that required a height requirement. And so what we re- realized was we need more family attractions. We need more attractions that families can do together. That's why Fantasyland is so popular. Families can do pretty much every attraction together. No one gets left out. And so that's what we needed the studio. So that helped guide um, our thinking. And once you know what that is, then you go to Imagineering and you tell them, I need a attraction with a 42 inch height requirement or no height requirement. And we pick these uh, franchises. So we want Toy Story or we want Star Wars and we want that to be the creative and you have this much money and they got to go figure that out. How big is the box? How much do I have to spend on the box and what I have to put in the box? And they hopefully they come back to you with a really creative idea. So it's a complex process. It's very iterative. Um, the way I've heard it explained is you take all the variables, you put them in a funnel, and you let them come through, and something comes out the bottom. And you put that in the next funnel, and you put them in funnels, and eventually one day something comes out, and everyone says, finance says we can afford it, marketing says we can sell it, operations says we can operate it, the guests say we're going to love it, and that's what we decide to do. That's wow. great. Uh, you know, and uh, just speaking from, we, we took our son when he was two years old and the things like alien swirling saucers, that was a, a godsend for us because he sure. loved that attraction and he was so excited to ride Slinky. We had a trip scheduled at the end of April and of course that didn't happen, but can't wait to take him back to those. And now that he's, he's four, he's going to be, um, and probably by the time we go five or five or maybe even six, but he will be, uh, certainly tall enough to do a lot of those other attractions as well. But it's so nice to have those for the whole family. Like you said, it's just a wonderful experience. So, uh, but we promised you some questions about leadership and uh, Brett has our first one. Well, we've, 
recently had the honor to speak with some Disney legends and others that have shared their firsthand experiences working with Walt Disney. Have you worked with any Disney legends or Disney company managers that you'd like to share some of your experiences and what you've learned? Maybe Bob Iger or Michael Eisner or anyone else? Yeah, well, I've had a couple of experiences. I met um, I met Michael Eisner um, a couple times. Um, and uh, it's funny, when I was a general manager at the Wilderness Lodge, um, I got an invitation to lunch. And uh, it was going to be um, Michael Eisner, myself. Um, I think at the time it was Al Weiss, who was the president of Walt Disney World, and Jane Eisner. I'm like, what am I doing at lunch with these? <laughs> they said, well, we're coming to your hotel. And he said he wanted the general manager of the hotel to be there. So I had lunch with the group, and it was great to understand. And he really wanted to see all the Christmas decorations at Fort Wilderness. He was, he was, he was interested in seeing that. So spent some time with him. Um, I've met Bob Iger a couple of times, uh, and I was just always um, in awe of his presence, his attention, um, Basically, you know, when, when you have a, your CEO show up, everyone is on their best behavior and everyone gets ready and there's always a big entourage. But the way he operated was basically, um, and even though I was there, the, the president of Walt Disney World said, Dan, you're, he, we're going to be at Magic Kingdom. It's your tour and Bob connects to one person. So we're going to tell him you're leading the tour and he will stay at your hip and he will walk as fast or as slow as you do. And he will be totally uh, connected with you. And you're the only one that's going to be talking to him. And that's the way he likes it. And it was a lot of fun because, man, when you're the CEO of the company, he's listening to your every word. You're like, oh, I'm the man. So, And he would break off every once in a while because a guest would recognize him. And he was very nice. He'd take a picture with them and shake hands. Um, but he was, uh, for me, he was a great role model of um, pay attention to people. It's a sign of respect, and it makes them feel really good. And uh, I was and always impressed with how he carried himself. He had a great memory for people and was just very welcoming. Um, I did some work with, uh, you know, Marty Sklar. I met him multiple times. <gasps> and he just, uh, he was just such a great guy and friendly. And um, he, he came and we did, a, we did a walk of the studios one day. And uh, I got a handwritten note from him the week after and just say, Dan, thanks so much for your time. And I mean, that's just class act, you know, when people uh, remember those details. And uh, once again, he set a great example for me is write thank you notes to people, be thoughtful. Um, so those were a few. I'm trying to think back to some others. Um, but uh, those are the ones that kind of left uh, an impression on me along the way. Um, well, my experience with Marty Scalar briefly while you're thinking about yours. Okay. Uh, let's see. So we, uh, I worked in Magic Kingdom Entertainment and we, I think it was the studios. I did the opening of the studios, the, well, you know, the, uh, well, the opening celebration sort of thing, you know, dance down, you know, Hollywood Boulevard and all that sort of yeah. stuff. But anyway, we did this special and um, we were doing this welcome event for Marty Scalar and Frank Wells. Yep. And we were in, you know, somewhere backstage at the studios. Um, it was still pretty new. I don't even know if it was open then. Maybe it was mm -hmm. anyway. And, uh, and so we were to be like these fans that were, you know, applauding them as they were coming down the, the way there. And, uh, so I broke out from my, from, uh, uh, the security there and I ran to them and I had an autograph book and I asked for Marty Scalar's autograph and he signed it. Then I asked for Frank Wells autograph and he signed it. And I looked at it later and Marty Scalar said Marty Scalar, but Frank Wells said Marilyn Monroe. 
which I thought was interesting. <laughs> I'm like going anyway. So that's my that was my Marty Scalar story. So yeah, I met. It's funny. I met I met Frank Wells once. I was a um, we just opened Disneyland Paris, and uh, I was a, a frontline manager in the parking lot, and we had these uh, moving sidewalks. We didn't have trams and moving sidewalks. And I ran into him out there and he said, hi. And I said, hi. And he said, there's a lot of cigarette butts out here. Can we get take that taken care of? I said, yes, we can. <laughs> that was my wow. He was, uh, you know, they were concerned. They wanted to make sure they were delivering the same standards as the United States. And that was his, his comment along the way. But yeah, very hands-on management team, leadership team. Um, executives were always, you know, they were out and they were listening to guests. And I think it was a great place to learn about leadership and how important it is to pay attention to details. It's, it's so interesting. We, we had the opportunity to speak to Leslie Iwerks and she spoke about uh, her conversations with Marty and, and how she ended up actually dedicating the Imagineering story to him. And, um, and then also just uh, recently uh, finished uh, Kevin Rafferty's book, Magic Journey. And, and he has some of those examples of those uh, handwritten notes from Marty and, and just, just such an amazing uh, man from what I've read and, and been able to, to learn of him. Just such a, such a, a neat experience. But um, another person that is uh, quite the amazing man that we owe him a lot to, you speak so much about leadership and culture. So I, I wanted you to put on your armchair analyst hat and uh, tell us what leadership qualities do you see in Walt Disney that allowed him to have the perseverance to bring this company forward and, and basically grow it into the company that we know today. Yeah, uh, man. He, I mean, every time I hear stories about him, I just see how he was uh, really a genius. I mean, just ahead of his time on all the things he did. And I didn't know about this, but I heard, I'm trying to remember where I heard the story. He originally, when Fantasia came out, he went to theaters and he basically said, if you're going to play Fantasia, you have to put this system in where rain, these, there's mist coming from the ceiling and you're going to have to put these uh, fans in and you're going to have to use the scent. So this, the, so he was like, he was the original like 4d theater guy, even with Fantasia back in the day, he was thinking about this and a lot of theaters didn't have the resources to do it or some of them did it and some of them didn't, but he was just, I, you know, I don't know where he got his creativity from just thinking forward. And um, I think I see his energy, when you just think about, um, I, I just see photos of him all over the world and all the stuff he was doing and thinking about and working on. And he would work on something and get that going and go somewhere else and plant the next seed. And he called himself, you know, he said, I'm a bee. I'm a pollinating. I'm going around pollinating to keep everything going. And then I think the last thing he had, kind of like Michael Eisner and Frank Wells' relationship, was he had his brother who actually, you know, was able to f- help him figure this out, keep him in line figure out the practical side of this because there's a whole bunch of creative people out there that you're never going to know their names because they never had anyone with them that could actually bring it to life. It always remained an idea on a piece of paper. And uh, somehow he and his brother were able to get through this together. And Roy was the guy that said, I'm going to make it happen, but I'm also going to keep you in check and I'm not going to let you bankrupt us too, too often. And uh, he was lucky to have him at his side and, um, I think he he re- he recognized how important it was to have great people around you. So he had, I think he had a big vision, but he also was able to keep his ego in check and pull in all these people with him and share along the journey. And uh, in today's world, that's more important than ever. You know, the complexity of the world today and how fast we're moving. Um, I always tell groups, 
you got to have a group of people around you that are going to help you think about decisions, get diversity of thought, diversity of experience. Uh, it's really the only way you can deal with things because no one person has all the answers these days. And they didn't back then either. I don't think we knew that, but Walt Disney did somehow. Yeah, absolutely. And, and kind of um, thinking about, you know, what makes a good leader and the experiences that make a good leader. Um, I had a question about your actual customer service uh, history, because um, there's this joke that uh, there are two types of people in the world, those that have worked in customer service and those that haven't. Yeah. So, <laughs> so our question is, is um, you know, in your experience that you've worked as a server, um, hotel front desk person, parking cars, um, what about uh, working in customer service has really helped you in your career? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I think the first, uh, I think the first thing I'll go, I'll answer a question a different way. People ask us sometimes, how do you get so many people at Walt Disney World to be so helpful and so happy and so positive? And what I tell people is, you know, I kind of have that fun with them. I go, well, come here, let me whisper the secret to you. I'm really <laughs> close. I say, we hire people who like to work with people and we like people who like to serve. It's like, no duh. I mean, it seems, like <laughs> but a lot of, I think what a lot of companies do, they'll hire someone based on skill or they'll hire them and say, well, maybe they're not a great fit, but we'll train them. And I don't think they realize if you don't hire someone who likes to serve there, no matter how much you pay them and how much you train them, they're still not going to like to serve. And it doesn't mean they're bad people and it doesn't mean they shouldn't be working, but they just shouldn't be in hospitality. And I think sometimes we make that mistake. So this is just the concept of right fit talent. If you hire the right people to work in the right environment, it gets so much easier from there. You don't have to, you don't have to motivate them. You don't have to, there's a bunch of stuff you don't have to worry about because they're just going to thrive because they're meant to be there. So that's a big one. I think the other big thing I always think about when I hire people is attitude. Um, Cause we, a lot of times we hire people for skills. The reality is at Walt Disney world, most jobs we hire you for, you probably never operated Pirates of the Caribbean before. So we're not looking for uh, prior experience. We're going to teach you how to do that. Um, we're looking for passion. You know, why do you want to work here? But most importantly, we're looking for attitude because people that have great attitudes, the way I define it, they overcome barriers. They don't care what's in the way. They're going to figure out a way because they're internally driven. It's a personal thing for them to, they have a pride in what they do and they're always going to find a way. And I love working with people like that. And people like that, I love have to hold people back versus, you know, put a fire under them. And if I can get a couple people on my team that have that attitude, I just like get out of their way and let them go. And the more people we can hire like that, the better. So I can't even remember what the original question is, but I'm excited about getting the right people on the bus. Because once you do that, everything's good. Yeah, no, you're, you've just hit it so on the mark. It's one of those things, hearing you talk about it, um, and when I've hired people, I, I guess I didn't realize I was doing that, but that's exactly what I look for is people who are friendly. Um, I, work, I help manage a theater. So people who are friendly can interact with guests, but I don't know that I've ever consciously thought that that's just something that I, you know, um, so I think you've hit it right on the money and how that's oh, helpful. When you see it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, <laughs> my turn. Let's see. Well, in past in past interviews, you've talked about how as you climbed the Disney corporate ladder, you had to rely on the leadership of those underneath you and not micromanage and mm -hmm. instead just let them do their jobs well. Um, what are some of the ways that you knew you could trust those people and were there specific qualities that you looked for in these individuals? Yeah. Um, 
I, I kind of had a process when I, um, and, you know, working in a big company like Disney, it's not like a sports team where you have a rebuilding year. And when you go into a new job, you get to pick all new people. Often you inherit the team that's there. And so you got to work with what you have. And so quickly what I figured out is, okay, what is everyone's strengths and talents here? What's everyone good at? And it's different. And if you try to lead a team and treat everyone the same way, you're really going to have trouble because people are not the same. And so I'd figure out quickly, all right, who are the high energy people here who are going to be the great people to put on events and be the cheerleaders and bring that? Who are the people who are very thoughtful and strategic and how can I engage them to work? Who are the people who love project management and they, they're great at projects? And who are the people that I just need to turn loose uh, to kind of collaborate with others because they love working with other people? So once I started to figure out what each person's talents was, I would start to pick the things that needed to get done and assign it to the people who I knew were going to have the most fun with it because they're already good at that. And um, that was probably, once again, I can't choose the people, but I can choose the tasks to give the people. And all of a sudden, people love their jobs because they get to do the stuff they love doing. So this idea of let's like sort of rotate responsibilities, I'm going to give you this responsibility for a year because you're not good at it. You need to learn it. Forget that. Give you stuff you love to do because I want you to be great at what you do. And the, the better you are at getting it done, the happier you are, everyone's going to be better. Um, so that was a big piece. Um, relationships, investing in the relationships with people. I mean, really getting to know people personally. Um, a lot of leaders say, well, I don't want to get too close. I want to keep a fine line. And I so say, you can have a professional relationship with someone, but they got to know you care about them. And you can't just say, okay, I just want to know you at work, but I don't want to know you personally. So I'd always get to know my people as will, as much as they're willing to share and be open. And, you know, different cultures have different levels of openness that they want you to know about their personal lives. But if I could know more about how old your kids are, what you do on your weekends, your prior experiences, it would just make me be able to lead you more personally and, and know what motivates you and know what buttons to push to get you excited about things and know what you get stressed out about. Um, uh, the, the third thing is expectations. This is something that's way underrated. Just let people know clearly what you expect. Don't hold back. A lot of people say, well, we work together a lot, so I just assume you know what to do. Well, don't assume. Tell people exactly what you're looking for. Make it easy for them to be successful and don't make them guess. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's something that we, we lack a lot. And then the last thing is uh, reward and recognition and feedback. So I always tell people, why do you reward and recognize people? Is it to make them feel good, build morale? I say those are all impacts, but the bottom line is you recognize people because you want to reinforce behaviors. If you do something that I wanted you to do and you get rewarded, you're more likely to do it again. People in the organization are more likely to do it more because they see it's a behavior that is, is valued. And then the last piece of that is candor. Can I talk to you directly? When you do something that can be um, improved upon, can I be really candid with you, not dance around it and not try to be indirect, but go like, hey, you really screwed up yesterday. Yeah, I know. All right, well, don't, let's not do that again. Do you need help? Do you need training in the future? No, I'm good. And you move on. And a lot of people are afraid to give that feedback because they're afraid to demotivate people. They're afraid they're going to leave. And I'm like, you can't, I've learned in leadership, you can't shy away from that stuff because you're doing them a disservice. If you're not holding them accountable and telling them when they don't do things well, they're not going to get better. That's how you improve. Think about coaches. Coaches don't like, they're not afraid to give you feedback. If you do something, if you don't catch the ball, they talk about how to catch the ball next time and how to improve upon doing that. And there's no reason in business you shouldn't do it. So, you know, the formula, hire the right people, make sure you build a relationship so they trust you, build clear expectations for performance. And when they do it well, thank them and reward them for that. And those were 
kind of four tenants I, I followed for decades at Disney and it worked out pretty well. Yeah, now, yeah. Um, oh, go ahead, Vanessa. I was just saying, I'm going to like take that audio and like send it out in files to certain people in my life so that they can hear that. Cause it's such, those are all such great points, especially don't shy away from what you perceive as conflict because it's a, a opportunity for the other person to get better. So thank you. <laughs> but did you, that, that's good. I don't know if y'all remember the movie, Jerry Maguire. He's like, mm-hmm. you think we're arguing. I think we're making progress. It's different culture. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of culture, your book, How's the Culture in Your Kingdom, is uh, just around the corner. It's a uh, pre-order on Amazon right now. It'll be in local bookstores as well uh, in the not-too-distant future. So talk to us about that book and what made you particularly focus on this area of leadership and organizational development. Your consulting um, business does a lot in terms of culture at the workplace, so it must be a yeah. pretty important topic to you. Yeah, just I think just growing up in Disney and how much we talked about culture and how much we held people accountable to results and leadership behaviors. That's the thing I love about working there Uh, because a lot of companies only focus on results and no one trusts each other and people will just step over dead bodies to get the result. It doesn't matter. And other companies are, they have great leadership, but they don't get things done and they don't last very long either. But if you can get an organization where you demand great performance and great results, but you also hold people accountable to respect people and get it done the right way, it's the best of both worlds. And so, you know, I grew up in that culture and it was second nature to me. So when I started to, um, you know, think about the book, um, I kind of came up with four buckets that I thought were important. Um, the, my editor said, who are you writing this book for? I said, I'm writing it for everyone in the world. He said, okay, that's nice. But who, who is the person you have in mind who's really going to take advantage of this and benefit from this book? And I said, it's probably a really talented leader who just moved out of individual contributor role and is now having to lead a team of people. And for a lot of people, that's really tough. It's a, it's a hard transition to make because they're great at what they do. But this idea of they have to get things done through other people is really hard. Uh, and what they end up doing is micromanaging people or they disengage or they try to do all the work themselves because they don't trust other people. And so you got to find a way to take a step back and delegate and get it through people, the work done through people. So um, the four sections, the first section is leading self. Um, just this idea, I, I explain it like when you get on a plane and they say you know, the oxygen mass drops, who do you put it on first? There's a reason you put it on yourself first, because if you don't take care of yourself, you can't help anybody else. And I'm just, that's a, that's a really big thing for me. So being, you know, physically, morally, understanding what your values are, handling stress, uh, being organized, just take, put yourself an advantage where you're going to get as many advantages as possible to be ready to lead. I call it fit to lead. And once you have that done, now you're going to have lead your team and you're going to go through and do the things I just talked about, pick the right people, relationships, expectations, reward. Um, The third section of the book is on leading your organization. So you think about creativity, innovation, communication, um, all the things you need to do when you're thinking. And when I say organization, this can be you and one direct report who runs a coffee stand. I mean, this has nothing to do with resources because it's all – a lot of people say, well, that's fine, Dan, but you're at Disney. You have all the resources in the world. The thing about leadership is um, I wish money could buy great leadership. If money could solve this problem, the world would be a much better place, but it doesn't work that way. It's about what do you demand as a leader and what do you expect as a leader. And then the last section is leading change, and we added that towards the end, but we thought 
with the world today, things are changing so quickly. Um, you know, we're in the middle of the pandemic. Some companies are thriving because they're looking for opportunities in this and others are really just crawling up and saying, we, we, we're done. We can't figure this out. Uh, but th- those who can adapt, those who can change are going to continue to do well, no matter what happens in the world. So those are the four big sections, lots of stories. Um, I, I want to share as many stories as possible because m- people remember stories. And at the end of each chapter, I've uh, fast tracked to success. So basically, okay, if you want to start tomorrow to get better at this chapter, here's six things you can start doing immediately, um, behaviors and actions you can take. A lot of people want to change, but they don't realize it doesn't happen. Just because you believe it doesn't mean it changes. You have to start doing things. If you care about people, you have to show you care about people. Just thinking in your mind you care about people doesn't mean anything until you actually do something because they don't know how, what you're thinking about. So um, that uh, having that discipline to follow through on things is, uh, is pretty important. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm really looking forward to, to reading it. So excited to uh, get my hands on that very soon. Yeah. We're excited. I, it's kind of surreal that it's actually going to be in bookstores. I, this was, you know, I've never done something from literally nothing to something. You know, when I manage projects at Disney, there's always something there already, or you're on a big team. This is basically when you get up every morning, the, the book's not going to write itself. <laughs> so, you know, I wrote it. At one point, my wife, I, I'm like burnt out. I'm like, I can't do this. She said, all right, I'll take over for a while. So she wrote a bunch of chapters. I wrote a bunch of chapters. So it was definitely a family effort. That's great. Yeah. Well, my next question has to do a little bit more about uh, having a Disney career. Um, But one of the things I might suggest to anybody who wants to start a career at Disney is to go out and read your book because I know I'm really excited to read it. I feel like there's just like a wealth of knowledge that you have that would be just so helpful to anybody wanting to start a career in anything. It doesn't have to be Disney, but um, <laughs> so I'm really excited about that. But the question that we have is uh, for a lot of people, um, you know, they want to work at Disney. That's the dream. Uh, maybe even getting fast tracking their way to working in the upper management. Um, you started more from the bottom, kind of worked your way up. So is that the way to do it? Or is there another way? And are, are there any other experiences um, or education that you wish you would have had um, going into it that would have made life maybe a little bit easier as you were yeah. climbing the ladder? It, that's a great question. Um, I think, you know, my story was not uh, uncommon, and when you look at a lot of the executives that work at Disney, they started at the front line. They started um, you know, doing hourly roles. And I think we really value that because we know that that's where the magic happens. It's the frontline cast member with the guest making those stories come to life. And so um, uh, most of us started at the front line and worked our way up. And I'll tell you, when you look at the company, when you have 74,000 people, which we had before you know, COVID-19 hit, you have a lot of people who have taken steps down from careers and to come to Disney. And so I would tell you probably in operations, 99% of the people we promote are from within because we know we get to see them in action. They develop reputations over time. They learn what it's like to work on the front line. They understand the operation. They understand the guests and they have a lot of credibility. And um, I, you know, I used to get calls from people who were maybe on director levels like, hey, you know, how do I get into Disney? And I'm like, I don't know how to get you in because we have so much talent internally. Now, we will take, you know, there's certain times when we've taken general manager of hotels externally because we want some outside experience. Sometimes outside experience is very important so you can catch up. Um, and there's, there's certain roles we'll hire externally. But uh, what I tell people if they want to get to Disney is do it early in your career 
and see what you think. Um, or um, I, I tell other people is, um, you know, go there and work part-time. You know, you may have a full-time role, but if go there and work part-time. At least get um, – um, you, once you're inside, you start to network and you start to see more opportunities. Uh, but it's, it's hard to break in, and it's very frustrating for people because when you're outside, you're competing with, I don't know, thousands of people that want to work there. Once you're inside, you're now competing with probably a lot less people, and you're, and you're going to have other opportunities along the way. Um, and, and as far as studying – yeah, you know, I, I never know. People say, there's anything you would have done differently. I'm like, I have no idea. You know, I, when I got, I ended up having 19 jobs with the company. So I was always very open-minded. I was always wanting to try something new. Um, and that was just fun. It helped me learn more. It always kept me sharp. I was always a novice. I was always trying to learn what the new thing was going to be. And it's a little uncomfortable, but once you are in that job a couple of years, you're like, wow, I know how to run a hotel now. I know how to run an attraction now. I know how to run a food and beverage location now. And those experiences just keep building up. And um, I tell every single person, be open to new experiences. Get as many diverse experiences as you can. Don't get worried about one year here and there. It's a drop in the ocean when it comes to your whole career. But uh, so many people get caught up in, I don't want to move jobs because I might get promoted. I tell them the worst thing that could happen is you get promoted and don't get to go do that other job because I find these experiences when I show up in a park, you know, I got to Epcot as a vice president. I'd worked there as a frontline. I parked cars there. I used to work in guest relations there. I mean, I had been a manager there and I knew what that park was all about. And when I was there as a vice president, I'm like, this is, this is coming back home again. Um, so there's a lot of value to that. So, um, it's, uh, it's tough to break your way in, but it's a, it's a cool company to work for. It's very demanding. But uh, if you like working on teams, and, uh, and it's, uh, it's a fun place to be. Um, you're also quite the podcaster. So I uh, really enjoyed uh, listening, and I do enjoy listening to Come Rain or Shine, and uh, would recommend it to any of our listeners that are interested at all in leadership or entrepreneurship. Uh, you and Jody do such a great job. They're, they're um, smaller segments, which I enjoy. So about 20 to 25 minutes, and you can kind of get some leadership skills out of that. Uh, recently, you've talked about remote uh, work, and I, I think that that's a really timely issue. I love the episode that you had Lou Mangello on, and you talked about the, the power of positivity and, and how that changes business and, and culture and atmosphere. Um, but I, I just thought maybe uh, if you wanted to expand upon your podcast and talk a bit about that and, and how you come up with some of those topics that you go over and uh, how that experience has been for you. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, something I didn't mention previously was another um, big influence in my life and at Disney was my dad. You know, he worked there for 16 years and he retired back in 2006 and started a whole new career path and wrote four books and podcasts. And so when I was thinking about leaving Disney, I talked to him. And he gave me a lot of confidence because, you know, leaving Disney is terrifying. You just don't think you can do anything else because you've been there so long. And he gave me a lot of uh, inspiration uh, to go do that. And um, Jody Mayberry, his, he does his podcast. He just asked my dad, he and Jody just hit the 300th episode. And I'm just hitting the 100th episode I think, next <laughs> week. And um, so when I connected with Jody, I said, I'd like to do a podcast. He said, hey, let's do it. He said, but I want to give you a heads up. Most podcasts last seven episodes before people run out of stuff to talk about. And I said, well, I don't, I'm not going to run out of stuff to talk about. And so we uh, started and um, it was, you got to get used to it. But I think what we, where we've gone now is uh, I'd like to say there's a whole strategic planning process around it 
typically we get on a Zoom, and he said, what do you got today? And I said, I'm not sure, but I read an article this morning about uh, someone in leadership in some company, and I think there's a good story there. Or I just got back from meeting with this client, and let me, I want to, I'm not going to talk about the company, but I want to talk about some of the conversations we had around development. And so a lot of it is just very top of mind. And uh, some, what he started doing recently is he'll get my book and he'll pull out a chapter and say, hey, let's talk about this, this, these three lines in your book you talked about. Can you tell us more about that? And um, luckily, I'm a talker. So I, I basically talk for 10 minutes straight and I stop. And then he has, to, he has a hard job. He has to ask a real insightful question on the fly and then keep the conversation moving along. But it's been great for me because it makes me put my thoughts together it connects. And a lot of times when I do a podcast, I may have a keynote speech the next day and I already have a topic in my mind because the podcast helped me think about it. So it's been good, uh, I guess, therapy for me to think about this. And it's fun to, to hopefully know that people out there are listening and having a good time listening to it and maybe getting some tips here and there from my, uh, my successes and my failures. It's just a great, it's just a great listen. So I would uh, strongly suggest people uh, go out there. And like you said, podcasting is definitely therapy, uh, for sure. Uh, Brett, Brett and I have had our, uh, it's almost like marriage counseling when we come <laughs> onto this podcast sometimes. Vanessa is the counselor. Brett no. and I, uh, we, we air things Just out. Don't bring it, up turkey leg, really okay? Because well. that's where I'm like going, don't even stop. Yeah, you don't want to know. I'm, I'm sure you have your preferences of the snack foods at Walt Disney World, but uh, anyway. Are you okay Vanessa with Vanessa would like to know okay if you're a turkey leg. leg uh, is that... <laughs> Turkey leg, um, it's turkey leg quite, or Dole Whip. It's quite a treat, but uh, you don't even want to know how much sodium's in that thing. I'm telling you. I know, right? Oh, so much, but so good. <laughs> it's time for speaking of uh, back to Disney a little bit. It's time for some pixie dust. So, um, so Dan, do you have a favorite Disney magic experience? Was there a particular day or event that really stands out in your Disney career? Um, there's so many. Uh, we I, had the green balloon experience at D23 Expo the like maybe two times ago when they were talking about um, uh, um, it was the end of the day and a mom wanted to get um, I guess her her child I guess um, was other abled and wanted um, a green balloon and she promised him a green balloon. So it was at the end of the day and they were trying to find a, a green balloon, but there were no green balloons. And, and, and then, because this was the, okay, see, I just think of these experiences and I start to cry, but anyway, okay. But uh, so the story was that the cast member immediately went back and either blew up or found a green balloon and brought that balloon to, uh, to the mom and gave it, to the to her child so and then of course this was a d23 so they're bringing out all these green balloons to everyone so it was it was that one of those disney magic at d23 experiences yeah, that's just so, not even fair i mean that's so, just, <laughs> i know i'm like going so now every time i see a green balloon i'm like going oh <laughs> so, so there's actually you know, it's funny you, i go from zero to three so i'll, I'll tell you three quick ones uh that um they're not all the emotional, but they're, they're fun. So um, one is uh, I remember during the um, um, it was a year of a million dreams. One of the prizes was the family could visit magic kingdom by themselves. So one morning they won this and 
they got to come to Magic Kingdom and be in the park for like two hours before it was open to the public. Just them. And we, um, we filmed it. I'm sure it's on YouTube somewhere. But they walked in the park and they were walking down Main Street. And there was a film crew that was hidden filming them. And when someone said go, about a thousand cast members and characters and dancers all came streaming out of the shops wow. and surrounded them. And it wow. was like, oh my gosh, just going from four <laughs> family members on Main Street just to all of a sudden there's thousands of people cheering for them was, I thought that was pretty cool. The, the second one is a little more emotional. Um, there was a story at Cinderella's Royal Table, and a server had uh, the family came and welcomed them, and the little girl was there. And she said, well, what are you doing here today? And she said, well, it's my sister's birthday. And she said, well, wow, that's great. She said, where's your sister? She was looking around. She said, well, she's in heaven, but this was her favorite place to come to have uh, breakfast. Yeah. And I mean, talk about a tearjerker. And they had a moment where they took the family outside and they, they would come every year on the same day to celebrate their little sister's uh, birthday who had passed away. Um, yeah. So that was, and there's, you know, there's lots of stories like that. People come mm-hmm. back to remember the great times they had. And then a little more, I'm going to leave you on an upbeat story. But um, one of the things that when I was at Magic Kingdom, uh, when I first got there, we didn't have any um, alcohol, right? There's no beer and wine. Um, Be Our Guest was the one restaurant that you could have it with your table service meal. And invariably, I'd be out walking around the park, and about once a month, I'd run into a guest who, and I know the cast members got this question, but I'd run to a guest, hey, you know, where can I get a beer, you know? And a lot of times it was guests from the UK, and it was that one guy's like, hey, mate, where can I get a pint around here? And of course, you know, you'd say, well, Walt Disney wanted a, a family fun place. And they look at you like, yeah, but where can I get a pint? And so um, finally, I wanted to create my own magical moment. So I bought one of those little dorm refrigerators like you have in colleges, and we stocked it with different kinds of beer, and we kept it in my office. And when, if I was walking the park and I ran into one of these guests, I did this five or six times. They'd say, hey, mate, where can I get a pint? And I'd say, you know what? Go tell your family you just met the vice president of Magic Kingdom, and he's going to give you a business tour, make it sound official. So he'd go to tell the family, family, okay, we'll see you in half an hour. I said, we'll, we'll catch up with you. And I'd bring him up to my office above Main Street. He'd come in my office. And I'd open the fridge. I'd say, what do you like? And we'd pop a beer open. I wouldn't drink because I was working. But they would drink a nice cold beer. We'd t- chat about where they're from and about working at Magic Kingdom. And I'd say, you can't tell anyone about this. This is really this like even more secret than Club 33. And I'd take them back to their family. It was our secret. And so there's some people over in the U.K. right now sharing to their families that they came up and snuck a beer upstairs at the Magic Kingdom back, back a few years ago. So that was always fun. That's so cool. That is so cool. <laughs> yeah. And you know, the, the through line and all those stories are just the amazing cast members that Disney employs that, that create these magical moments and things. So uh, before we leave, we have uh, just a couple of quick, uh, we put it out to our social media that we were going to be speaking to you. And, and so this is uh, just a couple questions that they had. Uh, and the first one was, looking back at your long career with Disney, what accomplishment are you most proudest of? Uh, and what regret might you have in your time with the company? So the, mo- the thing I'm most proud of, you know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of people, the big projects, right? We open that attraction. We open that land. Those were always exciting to me. But the way I'm wired, um, I just like, I love the idea that um, I know managers and leaders who ended up getting promoted through the ranks 
And they're now, I helped develop them. And now they're giving advice to new people coming through. And it's sort of that leave a legacy, pay it forward kind of thing. And lots of people helped me in my career. And I just love to think that there's going to be somewhere, someone sitting around telling a story about one time when Dan gave him advice or gave her advice on this or that and really got him straightened out. Um, you know, it's, uh, I, only, I only cried at um, one Disney movie ever, and it was Coco. And my wife's like, what's up with you? I'm like, I don't know. I'd never cry. But there's something about this idea of as long as you tell, remember people that you keep them alive. And there's that idea. So I'm just proud of, you know, having worked with so many talented people and being there, hopefully to have a role in helping them through their careers and their life along the way. Because, you know, people run into some tough times along the way. Um, Regrets. You know, I don't, I don't. I hate to think about regrets because I don't, you make the decisions you make in your life and you move forward. And I don't, I don't really regret anything. Um, obviously we make mistakes as along the way. Um, and we learn from those things, but that's just life. And I think life comes at you that way. And, uh, my, my grandfather, I often repeat this. He, he was, uh, he grew up, he went to the Naval Academy and graduated in three years back in the forties. Cause he had to go to world war II. And he was a rear admiral and he was just an impressive guy. And he left a quote for me. I've kind of followed my whole life. And as I'm getting older, it becomes even more impactful. But his quote was, you do your best and then you forgive yourself. And um, I think a lot of people are really good at trying to do their best, but very few people are good at forgiving themselves. And I think uh, carrying regrets around, I don't think is healthy. And I think you got to forgive yourself. You got to move on, get rid of, uh, you know, Brene Brown talks about get rid of the shame you have and embrace yourself and just know that we're human. We make mistakes. And as long as you try to get better every day, that's what life's all about. So there's my, there's my regret comment. Oh, preach. I love me some Brene Brown. I love me some (laughs) Brene Brown. I love it. (laughs) Right. Um, If we have one more, Craig, do we have time for? Uh, Okay. Okay. I didn't want to, I want to make sure I wasn't throwing think, off yeah, Craig. We've, we've got two more social media questions. Okay, if great. That's okay. okay. And that'll be it. Um, so another question we had from a listener was, uh, what makes each of the parks unique in your mind? Wow. There are, uh, I guess, you know, it, when you think about that, a lot of it does come back to um, culture. Uh, you know, the magic kingdom is the original place. And it is the mothership. I mean, when you think about the volume Magic Kingdom does, it's an it's a intimidating place to run. When I first got there, I was like, oh, boy, I don't know here. Because it is – there's nothing like it. It's – when you get over 20 million guests a year, it's double the other parks, or it used to be double the other parks. And it's just a different life. It's a different place. The sense of urgency the cast have there, the, uh, the, the speed and the volume at which everyone works is kind of, like, unheard of. And – when you get there, it's a scary place to be, but it's such an exciting place. It's like bigger than life. Um, Epcot has always kind of been that um, laid back place. World Showcase, like I said, for me, that's the heartbeat of, uh, of the park. Um, it's that original uh, view of Walt Disney had of building this community of tomorrow, I think is a, is a really cool concept. And hopefully they're going to hang on. To, I know it's becoming more entertainment oriented. They're going to hang on to some of that feeling. Um, plus, you know, all the operating participants, you get to work with people from all over the world. And the international piece for me was just very intriguing. Um, studios, you know, for a long time, that was my favorite park. I was there. I worked on the college program the year that the studios opened. And it was just such a cool place. It had those sound booths you could go in and listen to 3D. And 
um, the Art Deco and just that feeling it had for me was just such a neat place. And it was always that place that was probably the most entrepreneurial because it was the smallest park and had the most flexibility to, to do new things because it was based on the movies. And then obviously Animal Kingdom um, is such a unique place. Uh, you have the animal programs team there, that world-class vets, world-class zoologists. And to, to be truthful, they don't care about guests. They're all about animals. They're like, look, just don't make the guest interfere with what we're doing to, you know, learn from these animals. And then you have the operations side that says, yeah, but the guests pay the bills. So we got to make sure we keep them included. But what they've been able to do in terms of um, supporting, they write millions of dollars of grants every year around the world to help endangered species and, and teach people. They do a fantastic job of teaching people about nature and respecting nature and understanding how special it is. Even in Pandora, you know, from a science fiction movie, you go there and they have a huge environmental message. So, um, that, you know, those, those are the four that go around, and they are extremely different, extremely different cultures, but uh, with very, I think, discreet messages they send to people. Well, now, this next question from one of our uh, participants on our uh, website, uh, on Facebook. Um, I mean, it could be its own podcast, but, so, <laughs> if you could change or add something to each of the parks in Walt Disney World, what would it be? Oof, boy. You know, <laughs> just and that if you can't think of all question. the parks, maybe, yeah, maybe just, just even just the one, uh, whatever, you know. Uh, you could say, fix these, imagination. These listeners <laughs> are asking a lot of you. <laughs> okay, well, for you, Brett, I think they should fix imagination. <laughs> Thank you. Ah, yeah. ah success. <laughs> I think generally, I think what I find, Epcot does a pretty good job of it, but this idea of um, building more areas for people just to chill and just mm-hmm. enjoy where they are. Um, you know, families that go on the, um, the, the kind of death march, right? You get the kids out of bed at seven, we're going to be there for opening. And at eight or 10 o'clock at night, they're chasing You watch the fireworks. We're paying all this money <laughs> is, you know, I think people just don't, um, we set it up that they have to work really hard to have a great vacation. And we had tested at Magic Kingdom at one point, uh, you know, these, this idea of cabanas. You know, like you go to a really nice – you go to Vegas or you go to the water parks, you can rent a cabana. We said, what if we could have cabanas in the theme parks? So you could rent these and maybe you can rent them by the hour. And people can just go hang out, take a nap, maybe chat with their families, just be – just have some downtime. And I think I like that idea. I think that's the – Maybe that was one of the original concepts of the parks. It was going to be this place where you just stroll and enjoy together. And it's become such a race to get everything done. Now, part of that's culture. People are like, look, we got a lot to see. We get, we're, we spent a lot of money to be here. Let's pack it all in. But um, more and more, and I've seen this with COVID-19 where people have maybe learned how to just slow down, and enjoy simpler things and mm-hmm. enjoy nature and enjoy having conversations with people. And uh, I think if they can bring whether that's design or that's through the way they build attractions or the way they do the area development, getting people to slow down and just enjoy the moment they're in and be in the moment. And that's probably a more general statement, just theme parks, but that seems like an opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, and it's those quiet moments and those quiet places, even just right off main street, that small um, side street that has the tap dancing window. It's my wife's favorite place in all of the parks because you can, (laughs) You can go back there and even just the little, uh, there, 
you don't know how many people are actually going back there and there's a there's a sound of vocal lessons and tap dancing going on above yeah. you for for maybe the this the couple of dozen people a day that, that end up wandering back there it's just incredible the amount of uh the amount of effort that's put into those but yeah those deeds and it's funny we yeah. tell a story about that my office was right next to that that dance studio oh. so i'd be my, i heard them every day all day every day i, went to work, <laughs> I heard the tap dancing lessons <laughs> Never made improvement. I don't know why they kept paying because they never got better. But you did learn a a shuffle step, right? Or something. Uh, You can do that now. So that's right. Well, Dan, thank you so much. It's just been such an enlightening, uh, little over an hour here. Uh, We, we really appreciate uh, all of the work that you did with the Walt Disney company and uh, just the amazing experiences that you were able to bring from that. And then now all of the work that you're doing and sharing that with us. So make sure that you go out and purchase Dan's book. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy that. It's, you can find that at local bookstores and also on Amazon uh, as well. So, so make sure to go check that out and just thank you so much uh, for everything. Well, y'all are doing a great job. This is a really cool format. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. I, I'm, I'm honored to say I was on the same podcast as some Disney legends. So I think that's pretty cool. I'm going to have to call my mom and tell her. <laughs> <laughs> you can join in and join in all of our fun because we're not always Disney legends, but we're generally fun. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you so much and, and have a good rest of your day. Thanks, guys. You thank take you. care. Thank, thank you. you. Bye-bye. What a wonderful conversation with Dan. It just learned so much about his experiences in the parks, his opinions on the parks, and uh, his ideas of leadership and culture. Brett, talk to me about this interview. Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Well, I learned so much, as we always do. <laughs> he, he did not commit to the, <laughs> to the turkey leg uh, controversy, which I'm actually quite happy know. for. <laughs> I, th- I think there was a pretty bold commitment there. He said he liked it. He just oh, mentioned yes. the sodium. We oh, can mention okay. the other nutrient levels yes. in there if we'd like. Sodium is yeah. just one nutrient. He loves the turkey leg, period. <laughs> loves the turkey. Well, that's that's Vanessa's takeaway. My takeaway is that he had an amazing career at uh, at Walt Disney World. He's taken those experiences and created his own consulting firm, and he's ready to take on the world there, too. And a new book. And a podcast. And a podcast. He's getting around. He's doing a lot. And uh, kind of that whole idea of servant leadership and and putting out there uh, his lessons and what he's learned over his extensive career. Vanessa, talk to me about Dan. I just feel like he's one of those guys that you want to call up and have uh, like a good talk. Like, Dan, tell me what to do. I don't know what to do in this situation. Like, what would you do, Dan? And then like get his uh, expertise and just have it constantly. Of course, you can't have him there constantly because he's a very busy guy, but you could at least listen to his podcast, uh, buy his book and just reference it anytime that you have any kind of uh, leadership or management question. So that's what I plan on doing. And then of course, having all that Disney knowledge that he shared with us and Disney stories. And yes, he made me cry and I was going to call him out for messing up my makeup, but I thought maybe I should not so you're welcome. I didn't do that. But yes, he, there was just such a wonderful interview. I could talk to him for hours more. He's um, he's just a really fascinating person. Yeah, he's really open and, and um, very uh, nice to talk to. You know he has so much business experience, but he has that, 
wonderful persona about him. And I would have loved to have a beer in his office on Main Street. How great of an experience would that have been? So, I know, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh well, but this is what we could no. do. We could go to the, the now VP and say, you know, Dan had a cooler. And if he, if he were here, he would offer me a beverage. So why don't we go take a look and see what's in your cooler? That would be perfect. That would be perfect. Well, uh, thank you again, Dan. Uh, make sure to go out and check out Dan's book, How's the Culture in Your Kingdom, which is available now. Uh, you can go on Amazon and you can go to your local bookstore and you can pick up this book and learn an awful lot more from him. Uh, and I think it'd be well worth your time and, and well worth the read. Uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. So we are continuing to get some amazing interviews and be able to bring those to you, but also, uh, having the enjoyment of just experiencing Disney. You just got to experience our Disney song draft. That's such a wonderful and fun uh, competition that we had. And so just continue to follow along with us. And we're doing and we're quite a bit friends. more. We're still <laughs> sort friends. Of. Sort we're of. still friends. We, uh, <laughs> we're certainly doing a lot more on social media. So make sure to follow us on Beyond the Mouse Pod. If you are listening to us on whatever podcast app you're listening, please give us a rating. It just helps other people define the podcast and come and join the family with us and, and listen along uh, with Beyond the Mouse. So we really appreciate that. I'm so excited where we have uh, what we have coming up and the plans that we have for the show. It's just going to be wonderful. And thank you for coming along with the ride. And again, Dan, if you're listening back, thank you. You uh, truly made some wonderful experiences for guests while you were a cast member and in those management roles. And you certainly had uh, made a wonderful experience for these three podcasters. So we really appreciate that. But that's all I have. So for Beyond the Mouse, I am Craig. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Brett. And we will see you real soon in the front row. Walking right down the middle of Main Street, USA. Maybe Aww. up Dan's office. I'm going to knock oh, on every door. <laughs> I'm knocking on every door till I get a beer. That's all, oh my that's all I know. The secret is out. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening to this episode, a proud member of the Front Row Network of Shows on NPR Illinois. For the past five years, we've been providing hours of content every month, and now we've created the chance for all of you to get even more content. We've officially launched our Patreon page to give you the chance to support our work. There are four separate levels, and each come with their own amazing bonus perks, including exclusive episodes, full movie commentary tracks, and even the ability to choose what episodes we do and be on them with us to show your support simply go to www.patreon.com slash front row network that's patreon.com slash front row network thank you again and as always we'll see you in the front row